Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG. Choose from plug-in, hybrid, or all-electric. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul. Hello and you're very welcome to this, the latest edition of the Magnified with Matt Cooper podcast series. An opportunity that I get to have time with my guests to have really detailed and hopefully interesting conversations. We haven't had any politicians on the series to date, but we're changing that today because we have here in my kitchen the Minister for the Environment, Climate, Communications and Transport, Eamon Ryan, the leader of the Green Party. And this is an extensive interview in which we talk about the green agenda, public support for it, uh, cars, roads, power supplies, offshore wind energy, and many, many other things over the course of the next hour or so. I hope you enjoy it. Eamon Ryan, thank you very much for joining me at my kitchen table. John Gormley, your predecessor as leader of the Green Party, told me in an interview back in 2007, justifying the Greens going into government, that you had a decade to save the planet. Now, that was 15 years ago. Clearly, the planet is still here. But I know he wasn't suggesting Armageddon was coming, but he said he was implying that so many things had to be done in a decade to actually secure the future of the planet. Those things wouldn't just be in Ireland. They'd have to be globally, but... What's your assessment of how we've done over the last 15 years in securing our future? We haven't. That's the clear assessment, I think. And this summer, I think, is copper. The last summer just gone is just copper fastened it in people's, I think, understanding of that. We're seeing the weather extremes that we expected, but seeing them come earlier, quicker, through to, due to climate change. We've seen an ongoing destruction of and loss of biodiversity in our planet, and we've seen continuation of pollution. They're the three kind of pillars of the ecological crisis we're in. And the last 15 years didn't deliver at the scale and speed the transition we need. Uh, It makes the challenge all the more difficult now in terms of what we have to do and the curve that has to be, particularly in relation to climate change, if you're to have a probability of avoiding some of the tipping points, which sees runaway climate change, then the curve that you have to follow to reduce emissions gets all the steeper every passing year. So it would be far better if 30 years ago, when the the science of this was understood, we started that journey um, with all our efforts it would have been easier again, I suppose, uh, if uh, 15 years ago, that it was still, it was a much bigger challenge, but the challenge today is, is even greater. But that doesn't take from the, the need for change. You mentioned this summer and the weather. There'd be an awful lot of people who would say, what are you talking about? Well, we've had heat waves in the past in Ireland, like we've had this year, and there was only two brief heat waves. And... You know, this is just the weather. Weather is changeable. How can you actually attribute it to climate change? You can increase, and it's true. I'm old enough to remember the summer of 1976, which was a very warm summer, but not nowhere near as warm as this one. Um, it, it is, it's on the extremes. It's it's the number and the, vari- and the, um, 
the regularity of extremes now. It's not that the extreme didn't happen before, but what might have been a one in a hundred year event is now becoming a one in ten or one in five year event. And and the problem is the weather is okay, you can manage, you know, adverse weather. But the problem is the knock-on consequences it has in food production, in so many of our other systems. You look at what's happened in in Europe with kind of rivers running low, which means then you can't transport goods. It, it happens. It has effects. Uh, well, in the really extreme end of it, you can in parts of the world now start to see weather uh, limits that actually questioned the habit, the ability to live in a place. I, I remember a number of years ago, I went to the Potsdam Institute in Berlin, which is probably one of the leading climate science um, institutes. And they'd been commissioned by the World Bank to do analysis. And what if we were, which is what we were moving towards, a four degree increase in temperatures, what would that mean? And I'll always remember they, they presented some maps which showed, for example, the centre of India, um, a large part of India not habitable. You know, when you have areas that are above 50 degrees centigrade, um, that becomes very hard to live in. Um, and that's what we're starting to see happen. Um, and similarly, in terms of just the, how this can spiral, when you have very high temperatures, now Ireland doesn't experience these, but a lot of Europe is increasingly. If you look at the maps for Spain, Italy, uh, again, it has implications for food production, it has imp- imp- implications for water availability, but then it has knock-on consequences. To cope with the heat, you need more air conditioning, which drives up uh, energy use, which drives up emissions. You can go on a spiral, and, and that's what we have to avoid. Yet a lot of people just don't seem to believe this, or even if they do believe it, they say, well, what can we in Ireland actually do about it? Because we're such a small contributor. And even if we start dramatically changing our lifestyles, it'll make damn bit of difference as long as the rest of the world continues doing what it does, particularly the likes of the United States and China as the biggest emitters. I think there are very few people left who don't believe the science. I mean, I think it's so incontrovertibly clearly true that I don't think that is the main phenomenon. I think there are, what you say, the other thing you say about, oh, why should we do it when, you know, we're only small? That is a a more common response, although I think the vast majority of Irish people do want to do it. They want to know how we can make this change. Um, Ireland is not insignificant. Okay, there's five million in the Republic, but um, the equivalent of the poorest people in the world are emissions. Uh, account for something like 400 million people in the poorest countries. So that's that's not small. We we have a big footprint because of the nature of our of our economy. Um, I think the way the way this will work, it'll, the only way it'll work is if we're stopping going from unsustainable A to unsustainable B. You need a better alternative C. You have to make sure in that the change we make, it leads to a better country, a better place to live, a better, more balanced, more stable, more secure uh, uh, economy. And one of the reasons, A, we have to do it because we it, this will not work unless everyone uh, takes part. But the other reason I think why, why I think the way we can get Ireland to make the leap is to kind of change that around to say, why should we do it when someone else isn't doing it? To actually put ourselves at the centre, see this as something that we're going to be good at, that we will benefit from, that gives us pride, that gives us security, that gives us employment, that gives us um, a, a real sense of direction. And I think 
that is all possible. If you look at the solutions across in energy and transport and agriculture, in our use of materials, we have everything to gain from making the switch. It, it, it is hugely challenging. It's going to require real political commitment, but it's not impossible. And I believe the tools are in place, the technology is in place for us to make this leap. The, the missing ingredient is political will, public capital, public support, uh, and that political capital. But a lot of individuals believe that they've been asked to do things such as change their transport habits, travel less often, eat differently, have potentially a materially lower standard of living at a time when corporations, who are the far bigger offenders when it comes to emissions, aren't having anything like the same restrictions placed on their behaviour. I think if we, if firstly, this will only work uh, where it is, as I said, where it's not divisive politically. If we play this as a left-right kind of, um, you know, um, if we, if either we went this route, if we said, oh, it's all about the individual responsibility and what are you doing? And you make, you have to change your consumer patterns. You're the problem. You're the one who has to solve this. I don't believe that'll work. That's a kind of a market solution. You know, that kind of market uh, knows best methods of the last 30, 40 years, I think has been discredited. So I don't think that alone. If you flipped it and went the other way and say, oh, it's nothing to do with the individual, it's just the corporations. There's a hundred of the biggest corporations account for the vast majority of emissions. I don't believe that would work either. Why not? Because that is true. The biggest corporations in the world are the biggest emitters. They are. But their emissions they come in three ways. Uh, they come from what their own uh, industrial processing is. They come from the consumption of their goods. And they come from what their suppliers present. It's called scope, one, two, and three scope emissions. And you have to tackle all three. If you were, uh, you take, for example, if it's okay, a lot of those corporations would be in the energy area, the big oil companies, the big uh, fossil fuel polluting companies. And ultimately tackling their emissions, it isn't just about tackling the corporation. That means you have to change the entire transport system. That means you have to change the entire energy system. It isn't just... Now, yes, you can do that by regulating the corporations, and we will do that. I don't believe, in my mind, that's how you make the change. It isn't by putting the individual responsibility centre stage. It is about regulating markets. But there isn't like a magic switch where you think, oh, all you have to do is tell Shell and BP what to do. It has no implications downstream. Okay, but let me put it in a different way to you. For carbon taxes, for example, which individuals pay for things like the petrol or diesel in their cars or for their home heating. So they're paying ever-increasing carbon taxes at a time when the fossil fuel producing oil companies are the various traders, are making super profits at present and there's no windfall tax on them for making the biggest ever profits and using that money for share buybacks and dividends for shareholders. So they're being rewarded at a time when individuals pay increasing carbon taxes. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I think I met the Fatih Burrell, the head of the International Energy Agency recently, and he made the point that the oil producers have gone from making roughly, I think it was one and a half trillion euro profits a year because of the high spike in oil and gas prices that's gone up to four and a half trillion. And I think you're right. I think some of that money has to be targeted and redistributed to help fund the transition we'll need to make. 
is that discussion, that can't be just done in Ireland, but is that discussion happening, for example, at EU level? That our ministers are saying, look, we have a problem in looking after the citizens of the European Union. We're asking them to make change. So are they having discussions about imposing taxes on the fossil fuel producers? Yes, European, I'm on the European Energy Council and the Environmental Council. We've just agreed, I think, what's probably the most radical series of measures. It's called the Fit for 55 package. It's, it's to get 55% reduction in emissions in Europe in this decade. It's an incredible challenge. Um, included in that, there's a whole incredible array of, of complex measures. Including in it is the introduction, effectively, of a carbon tax on transport and households, household energy use, which wasn't there before. It's across Europe. It won't. Sorry, there again, a carbon tax on household energy use back again to the individuals and families, to the citizens, rather than a, an attack on the big corporations. Well, I think there are. I mean, on the corporations, there's a whole series of other measures. For example, how you regulate the car industry. We're saying there'll be no more combustion engine cars after 2035. No more new ones is an example of on the on the oil side, on the, on the oil company side. A lot of the regulations we introduce do put an obligation on the company. So you put a, a, an obligation on the company to deliver energy savings for the consumer. Because as I said, I don't think if we do this all as you're the household to blame, you have to make the change, it won't work. You do have to use the resources and skills of the companies. And I give another example, I mean, to put the positive spin on it or the other perspective on it. I think also what we need those companies to change away from the fossil fuels into, take those companies I mentioned earlier on Shell BP as, as one example, they have real ex expertise in the likes of uh, marine engineering, offshore you know, exploration and so on. That all has to stop and it has to switch to the development of renewable alternatives where we need those sort of engineering skills. So it is, it's a mixture. You need both carrot and stick and the European Union, in my, my expectation, uh, is that this process, this legislative package it goes to the European Parliament now. We have to negotiate with the European Parliament. I expect a lot of the measures to be introduced late this year, early next year. And I think people don't realise the scale of change coming, both at Europe and national level. Well, offshore wind energy and cars are two of the things that I want to talk to you about later in this podcast. But you mentioned there the 55% target the EU has. For the last decade and a half, there's been all sorts of targets have been mentioned at EU level, at national level. It seems that damn all of them are ever met. I mean, is this what we've been reduced to? All sorts of aspirational targets which simply are not met. I don't agree that, um, like, we haven't made the progress we need to make. Come back to it, the very first comment. But um, I remember I was Energy Minister from 2007 to 2011, and we set a target there that we would get 40% renewable electricity by 2020. And people at the time saying, that's mad, you never do it. It's not physically possible. You risk the whole country. It's crazy. Wind power doesn't work. And actually, we met the target. And it took 10 years, just consistent kind of, uh, kind of intervening by the state to give clear sense of direction. So we can and will do it. The question is, I suppose, how quickly can we do it? And, and I mean, this, this transition is coming but come back to what I said earlier on, because the alternatives are now better. Like renewable energy is now cheaper than the fossil, like 10 times cheaper than the fossil fuel alternative at the moment because the price of gas has gone through the roof, stratospherically expensive. 
Um, so it is coming. It just changes difficult because there's a lot of embedded vested interests and also invested investment over 100 years in fossil fuel infrastructure that we need to switch away from. The reason I asked that about targets is before the summer break that the government got, there was an enormous amount of arguing going on about agricultural emissions as part of our targets between now and 2030. Whether it be 22%, whether it be 29%, you settled near to the middle after negotiations on it. And a lot of people are looking at that and going, saying, yeah, that's all fine and well. But it simply won't be met. The targets that you've set down for 2030, based on what's happened over the last decade, given the amount of change that is needed in the rest of this decade, you're not going to do it, are you? The previous summer, we we introduced new climate legislation that will help us meet the targets, because within it, there is a legal obligation that in each sector, and that's why we were doing those sectoral emissions this summer, if the sector is not on track to meet its target, then under law, the minister responsible has to start adjusting policies, has to start introducing new measures that bring you back on track so that you can't just say, oh, well, we didn't make it, there you go. There is a justiciable, in other words, you can go to court to say that minister is not doing his or her job and they have to take further actions to show demonstrably that you will actually get back on track. And it's it's not easy. You, you may some years, like in the last two years, we've seen an increase in emissions because largely because money point was burning longer than expected. Um, that was probably the main reason. But it is, I think, under that legal mechanism now, we do have a method. We have one of the strongest legal systems that actually back up and require government and individual government departments to make sure they get on track. And in agriculture, which gets a lot of the attention, but again, I believe, um, going back to what I said earlier on, this will only work if we're going to a better economy. The Irish agricultural sector is an exporting part of the Irish economy. We export 80-90% of our food. We export on a green brand. We cannot trade on a green brand if we're not actually green in everything we do in how we look after our land. And it isn't just about climate. It is about water pollution and nitrogen pollution and ammonia pollution and biodiversity loss, which is a, a, an acute and critical crisis in this country. The loss of insect life, the loss of water quality, the loss of bird life, the loss of diversity in every way. Um, there are a number of ways that I'm very confident that we can actually make this change. And actually, a lot of it's connected to the energy area. Because one of the ways we will do, re- reduce our reliance on high carbon imported gas, which is our biggest security risk at the moment in this country, is to start using some of our grasslands to provide grass to feed anaerobic digesters, which when you mix with slurry and other waste products, generate gas. And that will be significant in our giving us gas security, but also it it reduces uh, the amount of grazing land that's avail- available for other agricultural uses, and therefore you reduce emissions in that way. Okay, but the lack of joined up thinking perhaps, because, okay, you were out of government between 2011 and 2020, but in the interim, a decision was taken in relation to quotas for dairy farming, which effectively opened, re- removed the quotas and there was an encouragement for Irish farmers to increase the size of the dairy herd. Yeah. So where's the joined up thinking if that was the approach? And now suddenly farmers have been told you have to reduce emissions. And for some, it's going to end up that maybe perhaps they'll have to reduce the size of their herds, having invested in bigger herds because they were encouraged to do so. 
Yeah, you're right in terms of we didn't, in that decade, we did not put the focus sufficiently on, on climate. And I think that's going to make our challenge all the more difficult, but doesn't take away the logic for it. And you could even go back further. I mean, it's interesting. I was asking the Rock Commission, another example of where we can change or we will change. A lot of the carbon we can store in our land, and our, our land use is probably the big, one of the biggest challenge, not just in farming, but in relation to emissions from uh, land use, from forestry and, and other ways in which we use our land. For 50 years, we've been telling farmers, uh, you have to drain your land. You know, that's the positive, progressive thing to do. And now in many instances, we are going to pay farmers for blocking some of those drains, for re-wetting some land. And you do have to pay farmers to do that because it takes real skill. And uh, we want to make sure that there's an incentive to make it happen. But that's another example where we've been going in one direction for 50 years and now we have to go in the diametrically opposite. You see, that's what's interesting as well. You mentioned earlier about, you know, the, the science is settled in relation to climate change. There are people who say the science keeps changing as our understanding uh, changes of things because you've just given another example there of farmers were told for so long to do thing one way because mm. that's what the science says is the right thing to do and then suddenly well actually no it's completely the reverse it's true the actual science of climate change is irrefutable it's it's akin to the laws of physics at this stage but the actual solutions and impacts there is continuing evolving understanding of science i give another example another significant one in terms of what we need to do We've been very successful in the country, going from very low level of forestation. At the start of the last century, we had only one down to 1%, 2%. We went up to 11%, real success. But a lot of the forestry we put in the wrong place. It was, it was um, single species up in uplands areas, often on very peaty soils. And you're right, the science is continuing to evolve in that, where we now realise that actually that is being a major source of emissions because the peaty soils, when you drain them, release carbon into the atmosphere. So what we need to do now to meet our climate targets in land use is a massive expansion in forestry, but again, it cannot go back into those same upland areas. It will go down towards better land, higher quality land. We need to move away from from single species clear felling forest system to a much more natural system, continuous cover, where you kind of uh, you have natural reseeding within the forest. You take trees out on an ongoing basis. It gives a good income. It gives great employment. It gives better biodiversity returns. But it's a radical shift in how we do forestry. And that, you're right, the, the science around that has changed and the knowledge and understanding of what we're doing with land has changed. And, and you do have to continue to adapt and evolve. Well, I'll give you another example. And you mentioned about the Minister for Energy between 2007 and two, or sorry, 2008, 2011. Um, diesel cars. I mean, that was the recommendation that people were told at the time, switched from petrol to diesel. And now, in retrospect, it looks like the diesel were worse for the environment. I don't think anyone was saying switch to diesel because we, we were aware that there was no uh, There weren't electric cars available or hybrids no, no, at no, the no, time. No, but what was done was the tax system was changed to reflect emissions. And the diesel cars, because, because of their characteristics, had a lower emissions profile. So it did lead to an incentive and did was part of that switch right across Europe as well as here. Um, and now it's switching back completely the other way. As you say, uh, sales of diesel cars are plummeting. Sales of electric cars are on the rise. I think the electric car one is going to be, is probably one of the targets that we will meet, even though people say that's... A important. million electric cars by the end of this decade. 
a percentage of cars, new cars, we will, by the end of this decade, all new cars, in my mind, will be electric. Or, um, and I think because they're better cars. Um, now, it, that alone, though, will, will not be the right enough to make us meet our transport targets. In transport, we need to do four things. Yes, we need to switch away from use of fossil fuels, but that's only one quarter of the solution. Um, secondly, we do need to reduce the volume of transport. We need to actually something like a 25% reduction in the overall volume. And again, that wouldn't, shouldn't be a negative. Uh, if we develop this kind of 15-minute city, kind of uh, better planning where people don't live so far from work, where you can do remote working, that makes that possible. Thirdly, we need a shift. We need to shift to public transport and to cycling and walking. It's not just about what the car fleet is. And lastly, and this is probably one that will continue to evolve, we also need to share our cars in a new way. Um, cars are parked for 95% of the time. There is a real risk for us that we would swap dependency on imported fossil fuels to imported batteries and rare earths which are needed for them. We There's a real opportunity as we make the change to use new digital technology to give really sophisticated, clever uh, ride-sharing and car-sharing uh, options that save people money, that uh, save the amount of cars we have to have and that they use much more efficiently. I think that's going to be, they're the four changes. Switch fuels, shift to new modes, reduce the volume and have new car sharing systems. Okay, there's a few things there that I want to pick up on. Let's start with the electric cars because a lot of people are concerned that environmentally they're not as friendly as are made out because you mentioned the batteries and all the rare metals that have to be used or uh, rare minerals. And the batteries run out and they have to be replaced. And so it's made difficult for a second-hand market in electric cars. They're very expensive as well. A lot of people just simply don't see them as being economically viable. Well, firstly, everything has to be recycled to the max. And that um, start, that's key, a critical part of the equation. The, le- the overall cost of an electric car versus a petrol alter- or diesel alternative is now very close to parity, particularly when you include the annual, the running costs and the maintenance costs. The benefits of electric cars is that they're much simpler drive system. It's a better car. You only have about 40, 50 moving parts on an electric car. You've over a thousand or so in a combustion engine vehicle. They don't break down. They've much better torque. They are much cleaner as well, obviously. So you end up um, with a running costs, which are a fraction of the fuel costs, maintenance costs, which are a fraction of the maintenance costs. And that then, when you start doing that comparison, they are actually now economically viable alternative. They will have to come down further in price, and that will come as mass production, as all the main car makers go towards mass uh, production. But you're right. The issue about those rare earths, and what the cost of the battery is, that's probably the biggest um, issue in terms of whether they're successful or not, or how successful is not. And that's why I keep going back to that. It isn't just about replacing the entire car fleet with a different type of car. It is about looking at how the whole transport system works differently. That's what we need to do. Well, again, and there's a few things I want to ask you about in cars, but... If people charge their cars at home overnight, if the range improves so that people don't actually have to be charging them when they get to work or whatever, you still have an issue that suddenly if we've about a million cars on the group network, is the electricity system going to be able to cope with all of that extra demand? 
Yes, because we're going to tap into offshore wind, which will give us about six, seven, eight times the amount of energy we're currently using. And, and, um, and the real skill in this new industrial revolution, and there is an industrial revolution happening in clean energy connected to digital and transport systems, and it's all about balancing variable supply and variable demand. The benefit for us is that at night, middle of night, when we have that wind power, when we don't have a use for it, that's when you charge your batteries and, and that's when you charge your heat pumps, heat, heat housing, heat the water that you use in the housing. And that turning everything on and off to match that variable supply with variable demand is the centre of the new industrial revolution and something that we're actually good at. I'm going to come back to that offshore wind energy in a little while because I just want to stay with cars because you mentioned things like the 15-minute city and that drives people in rural Ireland absolutely crazy. Or even in cities like Galway, which are spread out and have enormous traffic jams, this idea that you can actually get from A to B without a car is red rag to a bull for many people, particularly as you're not going to be able to put the public transport suitable into large parts of this country, are you? You are. We, we're, we're in rural Ireland. Out, we're rolling out a new Connecting Ireland rural bus transport system that radically, seeks to radically improve the quality of public transport. But come back to what I was saying earlier, Matt, like this won't work if it's a device of either politically left versus right, and it won't work if it's rural versus urban either. When it comes to electric vehicles... Actually, rural Ireland is probably going to have a big advantage because if you're in a, let's say, single house in the country, you have no problem getting car charging infrastructure. The biggest problem for electric vehicles is going to be the likes of city centres where our people, where you've got terraced housing or we have people in apartments, how those cars are charged is going to be a much bigger challenge. So actually, I think in rural Ireland, electric vehicles will will much more immediately fit in and have a real place because that charging issue is, is much less much less uh, of, of a, a challenge. Um, the 15-minute city, going back to what you're saying about, you know, people don't, you have to have a car. Well, and take Galway, you mentioned it there as an example. I, I think people in Galway increasingly realise that that car-dependent model that they followed in Galway is a disaster. It, it's not working. There was that... Um, very good article by Harry McGee recently where, you know, the city where the car is king, people in Galway realise it's not king. It's an absolute um, noose around the neck of the city because everyone driving one side of the city to the other side, um, everyone's stuck in traffic, no certainty around how quickly you can get from A to B. It's time to change, and particularly in places like Galway. And I, I was down there recently talking to the council, talking to the Chamber of Commerce. They recognise it. Like if Galway or any city in Ireland thinks, oh, we're going to be the successful city following an unsustainable model, I just don't think that works. I don't think anyone sees that as a viable future. I think in Galway, like in every city and town around this country, we're going to have to make a real shift. And it is the centre to is going to be creating a, a really attractive urban environment where it's safe to walk and cycle, where the distances are not that far in Galway. Uh, it's a flat city. Okay, it rains, but God, it rains in, in Denmark, it rains in Holland. They survive it uh, on their bikes. And, and I think the problem, the reason it hasn't happened is because we've designed it around the car and, and the limits of that, we're, we're reaching that now. We need to change. Okay, but... Just take Galway's example because I was there recently and drove from there to Rossneville on the way out to the Aran Islands. And all the way out, there is housing. House after house after house. And people are going to continue living in. There's new houses being built as well. You're surely not going to be able to put in place 
a public transport system which is going to suit people who are working in Galway or elsewhere, are going to school, going to college, whatever. The reality is, is that for many people, they will have to have cars. And maybe a lot of those people and maybe two car families, it's going to be a cheaper secondhand version, petrol or diesel, because they're simply not going to be able to afford the electric car. You mentioned, Professor, you mentioned John Gormley at the start and... and uh I was talking to John last week and he was saying to me, he says, great, he says, I left Dublin at seven in the morning. I was in Ishman at half 11. You got a bus down to Galway. You switch over to your, straight, your bus straight to Rossaville and you're in an Ishman and you can't bring your car to Ishman anyway. So you have, and it was half the price of driving and it was just as quick. And that, there are, I was off in Inishboff at the same time as you were. I got a CityLink bus from Aston Quay uh, hit, arrived in Galway two and a half hours later. For four, half an hour later, went out, got a cup of coffee. I was on the bus to Cleggan, dropped me to the pier. I was on Inishboffin within four or five hours. of, of uh, So there are alternatives and it does work. And, and versus having to have pay for the car being parked in Rossaville Pier. Or, or in, that is the sort of change we are going to have to start making. Are you committed, though, to building and maintaining new roads? Because that's, again, is that not just rural Ireland, but a lot of Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil TDs seem to be worried that while the Greens are in government, that things that have been long promised, such as the Cork Limerick motorway, the Galway Ring Road, actually won't get done. I, and I talk to them a lot about this because um, we have our, our emphasis has been on road building, and that's part of the reason why we have this long distributed sprawled planning system that is expensive and difficult to maintain, not just in terms of transport terms, but in terms of water services, sewage, and all the other. Like if we just keep going out and out, uh, um, and our cities are hollowed out, uh, and that's happened in all our five cities. Um, then you're, it's hugely expensive. You have to keep building infrastructure out and out and, and you get longer and longer uh, commuting patterns. So we do need to change. But it's not that there won't be any road building. And what I've seen to them in support of this 15-minute city and town concept is what we should prioritise in our road spending where we can is in bypasses. So you take the car out of the centre. So you revive towns, particularly a lot of, in my mind, a lot of the 19th century Irish market towns that are, now some are thriving, but others are seeing real decay. And and there's a lot of unused housing and, and shops that are, are, are underused. I'll give an example. The one I use off a lot is because it's a really good example. It's, it's up, up for a decision, I suppose, shortly. Tipperary Town, Tip, Tipperary is an example. On that road, on that very busy road from Limerick to Waterford, Rosslare Port. So you get a lot of haulage trucks take that journey from the industrial region we have around Limerick, Galway, and they're driving to the southeast to get, to get goods over to the continent. 
And Tipperary Town is destroyed by that through traffic, you know. And the main street, I think, was about 30% of shops are closed and, and a beautiful 19th century market town. So if we can there, rather than necessarily build a new motorway from Limerick to Waterford, um, but start with the first phase where you say, okay, do good bypass the Tipperary Town. Um, and as you do that, you start to revitalise and bring life back into that town. I think that's where we should spend the money. That's where the priority should be. A lot of projects are already in planning. They will have to be built. You know, they're so far down the line. Are you including the Galway Ring Road, uh, the Outer well, Ring Road and the Limerick Cork Motorway in that? Well, firstly, Limerick Cork Motorway, I, I, there, there are various options that, that, that are being proposed. And it isn't necessarily just motorway door to door from Limerick to Cork. It, it is critically, in if you look at that route, there is real safety issues. There is issues around Charleville, around Buttevant, like again, brilliant, Charleville, stunning 20th, 19th century market town that we need to take the traffic out of. So yes, we will upgrade the road from Limerick to, to Cork. But but how that's done and what the cost is and what the relative other investment decisions we need to make in Limerick and in Cork, particularly in my mind in the metropolitan rail systems in Cork and Limerick, so that you bring life back into the centre. I mean, Cork and Limerick are classic examples, particularly Cork, maybe I can give that as an example, where we've seen the city spread. Like it's moved out to Carrigaline, to, to Ballancolig, to, to I mean further and further, um, people commuting from Clonakilty to McCroom, kind of all distances in. We do need to bring life back into the centre of our cities. Motorways in and out of the city won't necessarily do that. What will do it is investing in the likes of Metropolitan Rail in Cork and Limerick, investing in bus connects in Cork and Limerick, investing in cycling infrastructure in Cork and Limerick, and that is we the government is clear. We are committing to 20% of the capital budget going to that act of travel and a two-to-one ratio in favour of public transport over roads. That is agreed. Um, and that will really constrain because because we've, we've 70 billion euros of projects ready to be built. We've 35 billion in this national development plan. So not all projects are going to proceed. We do have to prioritise. I'm sorry to keep coming back to this, but there are two particular ones that I know from my radio show, The Last Word, that listeners are particularly interested in. The Limerick-Cork motorway, the two major cities outside of Dublin in the Republic, and the outer ring road in Galway. There has been a lot of preparatory work done. There has been discussion for decades about the best routes and the rest, whatever. And we're still not settled on what the best options are. That Galway option, that is through the planning system, as I said, is very advanced. It's in the courts. It's been legally challenged, so we're going to have to wait that. And there is still then final decision gate. You have to look at the economics, the cost benefits, and so on, like in every project. It's not there's going to be a fatwa against any one particular road, or it's not like we, I recognise, I know that road from Cork to Limerick, uh, like the back of my hand, I've driven it, I don't know how many times. There are real safety issues that we have to address there. And as I said, in towns like Charleville, Buttevant, you cannot have them dominate, destroyed by true traffic. So there will be a significant upgrade improvement in the, in the road network between Cork and Limerick. You see, I wonder when, and you mentioned offshore wind energy earlier and how that's going to transform everything between now and the end of the decade. Except, when was the last offshore wind turbine constructed in Ireland? It was one of the first ones 
in Europe, if not the world, it was 2004. It was the Arclo Bank. In fairness, um, small Irish company uh, at the time, uh, Eddie O'Connor, Airtricity, were working with GE and it was an experimental project, seven turbines out in the Irish Sea. Um, it was, I think it was maybe the second or third project in Europe. We didn't progress further. Sorry, there were a number of projects that continued through the planning system in the East Coast in, um, along that bank. And how many have been built? None. But what we did instead, and I think it was a correct decision, is we went to build onshore because then, then it was significantly cheaper. And people would have rightly said, why are you going offshore when we have an onshore alternative that is more economic for the Irish consumer? Um, but now is the time to go offshore at scale and at speed. The first phase, there are three phases to it. The first phase, I'm in, and it's difficult because I'm in, we're in the middle of a consenting process at the moment, so we have to follow due, what does that due mean? process. There are seven pro- what we call relevant projects. They're the projects that were, were in planning in that intervening period. Largely along the East Coast, there's one in the West Coast off the Scourge Rocks in Connemara. Um, they will, uh, they've all con- sought consent to build. And that's proving you have the financial, technical and other capability to make it happen. Subject to that being approved, we will have an auction system starting this autumn where they will bid in all seven projects to uh, see who is the most competitive, who could build that offshore wind at the lowest cost. Uh, subject to that auction process, they will then go into the planning system and will start construction in the next three years. And three, four years, depending on each on each project. That's the first phase. We estimate it will give us something like about three gigawatts of offshore power. It could be slightly more. Slightly what less. does that mean? That's equivalent. If, at the moment, we're probably using nationally about five gigawatts. So it will give us that sort of scale, huge volume of power, largely on the East Coast, uh, largely connecting into the uh, Dublin and large, uh, where large, uh, a large amount of the energy use, energy demand is. The second phase is... Sorry, just before you get to the second phase, who actually owns the offshore land? Is it owned by the state? The state. So it's not a question of private ownership no. and being able to actually just do as they like. No. And uh, no, it's, it, this is state-controlled um, and led. The but se- the state won't be financing the no. construction. This effectively will be a bidding process. So will these operators have to pay the state for the rights? Yes, um, pay an annual uh, levy fee. Um, the state will own, uh, and at this in the first phase it will take time to evolve, but the state will own the transmission grid that connects and collects the energy and moves it around. And that's a key part of how you make this work. The second phase, but the first phase is those projects that were already in development. So they were kind of the developers were going back 10, 15 years saying, we want to develop in this site and um, they so have been given the rights, have they? Yes. But they haven't exercised them. So do they still maintain those rights or are they up for auction again? They are up for auction in this particular round and uh, and it's not an ownership. The, the land is owned by the, by the state. But the second phase uh, is where we start to move into southern and western waters as well as continuing to develop on the East Coast. And you have to be careful. You have to get the environmental planning on this right so that uh, and we have an advantage over other countries because our sea area is seven times our land area and it's probably one of the windiest places on the planet. So we have a real resource advantage in terms of both the size of our sea area and the speed of the wind. But because the wind blows well, which is good in that regard, but it also means that you have a greater swell in the water and the rest of it. So is that 
that not make it much more difficult and more expensive to anchor these wind turbines and keep them maintained? No, the cost has come down. Like in that interfering period since 2004, it's been shown that that this is economic. Like the UK have just done an auction system where... It's less than um, 50 pence a term or a, a megawatt. Um, that at the moment is is a fraction of the price of electricity on the Irish market. So it, it, it can and will be competitive. But just if I can, the second phase, we start to move in southern, western waters as well as east. We also move away from those fixed bottom where you're, you're piling a, a, or you're driving a pylon into the, into the sandbank towards a floating vessel. Now, these are very large. This will only work in very deep waters. I mean, once you go beyond 50, 60 meter water depth, it doesn't make sense to connect it to the ground. It makes sense to have floating turbines. But the scale is beyond compare. These are very, very large. Key constraint is getting environmental factors right, but I believe we can and will do that. We will not be the only people doing it. All our European colleagues are, are going at this at, at real scale. And the second phase will start showing how we can do that floating system. We recently, in government as part of the agreement this summer, said we will designate some of the power to turn it from electrons into molecules, if I could put it that way. In other words, to turn it from electricity into a stored energy. Now, you can do that in the form of hydrogen. You use, you convert using electricity uh, into hydrogen using water, or, or you can further convert into methanol, into ammonia. And ammonia you can use in power stations for combustion, you can use for shipping transport, you can use for fertilizer, there's a whole variety of different uses. Hydrogen, similarly, we can feed into our gas grid, starts giving us an alternative to natural gas, zero carbon green hydrogen. That's the second phase, so we're starting doing that. The third phase is the really big project. It, this is the prize. It's the biggest economic project in the history of the state. It's Ardena Crusher to the power of 10 in terms of impact. And it is tapping into that offshore resource, that 30 gigawatts, six, seven, eight times our overall demand. We can. It gives us a base for industrial development, particularly on the west coast, where you use where the power comes ashore, you put the industry close to that. It gives us an export potential. The new, um, what they call HVDC cables, it's a cable about the size of a tennis ball diameter. That can carry over long distances with very low losses, that electricity. So we're about, there's a new cable going in between uh, Wexford and Wales, and there's a new cable going in between France and Ireland coming ashore near Cork, near Carrickdool. That can carry about seven, 800 megawatts over that 900 kilometers with almost no losses. And that then gives us the ability to be part of a Northwest European electricity grid where you balance this variable supply, where you have an alternative to Russian gas. This is those Energy Council meetings I was talking about earlier on. This is what we're fixated on, is how do we create a European power system where we're not dependent on imported fossil fuels? And actually, Ireland has a real opportunity and advantage in that because we have the wind. How much is it going to cost and who's going to finance it? to be privately financed um, through this auction process and part of the consenting system is to make sure that people have that financing capability. Uh, the exact cost, we'll have to wait and see in terms of what the auction process is, but the example we're seeing still in these very high inflationary times is that it's significantly lower than the fossil fuel alternative. So it will bring down the price of electricity. But then is our air grid system in the country 
up to actually dealing with this additional supply if it comes. Because one of the things we're hearing at present is, is that air grid system has been completely underinvested in over the last 40 years and isn't able to take in many of the new sources of supply. We do have a challenge, and the grid is, is critical and central to this. The grid, where you have good electricity grid, you'll see economic development. And it's true, particularly back to maybe that last decade, I mentioned we had a last, uh, a last decade when we didn't pay sufficient attention to, to, to climate. Last decade being a lost decade? Yes, and, and I think one of the parts of the loss was that we ran into real challenges around the building out of grid in the country. We didn't invest in infrastructure in this country. Maybe we didn't have the money to do so, but surely when things started improving from nearly a decade ago now at this stage, like in housing, the investment should have been made. Yeah, and it had one of the challenges there was that there was it was politically very difficult. This is not like building any grid infrastructure or any infrastructure in this country is challenging. Um, and I think... Challenging in what way? Why? Who blocks what needs to be done? I think our planning system, I mean, Paul Gallagher, the Attorney General, is reviewing and revising the 2000 Planning Act at this present time. And I think we need to do that because it has been amended so many times there's so many kind of complexities within it that it, it opens everything to immediate challenge. And I think we do need, particularly in the climate challenge we face at this present time, we need to get good environmental conditions, we need to get right, good planning, but we need to get away from where every single thing can be held up in the courts and in the planning system for often up to a decade. We do need to start building in a way that's environmentally sensitive, but that is not uh, just endlessly stuck in in planning rows. I, d- I don't think that's good for local communities. It's not good for the state. It's not good for anyone. Do you think, I mean, the rights of individual citizens and local groups are very important, but do you believe that many of the objections that we have to all sorts of things and housing as well at present might be vexatious and selfish? <laughs> You don't, you don't, you can't deny the right for people. You know, they have, people have a right to, to, to protect what they see as important, whatever aspect of that is. But what we don't have a right to is a system, or, or we don't need is a system that's so complex and expensive that it just ties everything up in the courts forever and, and a day. Let's come back, though, to the issue of uh, energy security, because we are facing power cuts, it looks like, potentially this winter because we don't have enough generation capacity. So a couple of things in that. First of all, did we actually shut down some of our existing capacity too quickly when we didn't have alternatives in place? No, I don't think that's been the, the issue. I mean, that may be an issue in some other countries. My German colleagues have been dealing with that. But but no, I mean, we're, we're still actually running a lot of older plants that probably are you know, running at the very end of their life cycle, like some Money Point or Tarbert. Um, our, our problem is, on the supply side, one of the main problems was that we... we we went to auction to develop uh, or to deliver backup flexible plant to support this offshore this onshore wind that we have and the auction system didn't deliver it actually um, why not Dermot McCarthy has, has been asked to look at this as part of a review the former Secretary General of the Department of Taoiseach um, a number of different reasons uh, a lot of the time um, some of the plant that was promised wasn't deliverable uh, some of the planning uh, constraints in terms of being able to get planning in in sufficient time um, and also I, I would say a third reason we 
we probably kept the door open too wide for too long for a whole range of new, particularly data centers, which meant that demand kept rising and the ability of generation to keep up with that uh, proved really difficult. That is being addressed in a variety of different ways. Firstly, we have new uh, regime now around data centers where we're saying not it's not that no you can't have data centers and this personification oh they're the problem oh they're the kind of if only we didn't have that they are using 14 percent of all the available electricity and there's a projection that by the end of the decade that will rise to nearly 30 percent i don't know if it'd be as high as that but but you're right and that's why we do have to put in a new policy and and a new approach they're also part of an industry that provides a lot of our employment and income to this country the and corporate tax receipts from the likes yeah. of the Amazons and yeah, the Apples which isn't and insignificant and funds and all Facebook. the social welfare system education system and other systems we need but I think where we're going back to what I was saying earlier on there's an indu- a new industrial revolution taking place and at the centre of it is the balancing of variable supply and variable demand new data centres will have to be part of the climate solution. They can't resolve, absolve themselves and energy security solution. And I think that we can do that. First things first is you locate them in places where the grid is strong, where you know you can take it, where you don't have to upgrade the grid. Secondly, you make sure that they're part of this balancing system, that when when power supply is tight, they have backup generation capability, zero carbon backup generation capability that can help secure the system. So they become a a source of stability, not additional risk. Explain that a little bit more. Does that mean that they actually come off the grid at times of shortage and produce their own electricity via solar or whatever way? Or is it that they actually are generating excess surplus electricity to their own needs that they're feeding back into the grid that they're selling back in? That they have local part of the when you're planning and developing a new site, you for example, come back to Iran and said how you could develop this offshore wind and convert it to ammonia or convert it to hydrogen, and where you have backup storage and backup generation capacity that these because these sites need to be very secure, that you know you have that and they can then be part, particularly if the grid is under short supply, they can turn to those supply systems so that you have actually a strong and robust. So that it's it's not saying no to data centers, but it's no, it's making sure they're part of the solution to our energy security needs. Okay, but how long is that going to take? Because there is a fear now, it would appear, that the IDA has done an extraordinary job over the last decade in attracting in many of the big tech multinationals who need these data centers to actually operate the cloud and the various services and products that they actually offer. But that if we're in a situation whereby they can get planning permission, but they can't get connected to the grid, or they can't get planning permission at all, that they will decide not just to locate those data centers in other countries, but might move the associated jobs to those countries as well. Every country is going to have some of these challenges. It's not that there's an easy alternative or options here. The Sorry, isn't the average though, I mean, we have proportionately compared to the rest of the EU, far more data centres, a large part of it down to our climate mm. being actually more suitable for their actual structure. So we're not going to have, those other countries are not going to have the type of issues and difficulties that we're having with accommodating them. One of the reasons we have difficulties or challenges because we are probably the leading country in Europe, if not the world, one of the most, in integrating variable renewable supply and creating this new electricity system. We're right up there with the Danes and others Uh, in terms of learning the lessons of how you make this happen. Those companies, um, 
also know that their customers, come back to what we were saying at the very start about corporations have to play their part, those corporations, which are large energy users, know that they have to be zero carbon by the end of this decade. And yes, it does take time. Yes, we're looking to say, if you're ta- sitting down and talk to them now, okay, let's do this over the next six, seven, eight years. We know we can do this in a zero carbon way. I'm absolutely convinced that we have a credible proposition, a really secure future economically when we go down this zero carbon way, because those companies are going the same direction. And they recognize that there's lessons we're learning here that are going to have to apply in other jurisdictions. So I think we can maintain this kind of secure system where we have an economy that provides employment and all the other needs we need, but also a low carbon alternative. Okay, in the time that we've left with just a couple of points I want to pick up on you, and I don't want to be appearing entirely negative, but for all of these great ideas that you talk about, I still am concerned about delivery because I'll just give you another example of something that you announced recently, which has been announced, I don't know how many times over the last couple of decades, the construction of the Metro North, Mm. which is due to be done by, what, 2033 or 2035. And lots of people are very sceptical about the ability of the state to deliver on time, deliver on budget, or to deliver at all. The company, where the organisation we're asked, we're targeted with the actual building of it is Transport Infrastructure Ireland, TII. Uh, now, TII was the same organisation th- that delivered the motorway network, and they delivered that on time, on budget, and you know, hugely transformative effect. And so I, I'm confident that we can and deliver. We just need to deliver different things. We need to now use that engineering capability, that uh, contracting and uh, delivery capability that we showed. The TI have shown they can do it. We need to do it, not just the metro. Um, we need, as I said, I keep going back to, um, we need to deliver Metropolitan Rail in Cork, Oway, Waterford, Limerick. And we need to develop bus connects and, and the walking and cycling infrastructure. The metro is a critical part in Dublin of the long-term future. But if it was just the metro, that would be one thing. It's the metro plus, plus, plus. And the plus in Cork, Oil, Waterford, Limerick are just as important as the metro in Dublin. That's why one of the reasons, I mean, Irish Rail are going to have a critical role here. Uh, and I, I mean, we're looking at the likes of reopening the Foynes line and doing it quickly. We're like looking at, well, in Cork, we're looking at the likes of, and this is not difficult engineering, you know, reopening or opening a new rail line effectively between Mallow and Middleton, uh, running right through Kent Station and, and out the other side. And doing that, not just for the transport sake, but for the sense that, okay, then you put a station in in Little Island and you start to take the poor traffic out of there and put new housing in. This is connected, like the solving of our housing price crisis requires transport solutions. Uh, and that's why it is, yes, the Metro 
but metropolitan rail elsewhere as well. Yeah, just a couple of things to finish. And housing was one of the things that I wanted to come to. And I'm not going to ask you about new housing, but the retrofitting of old houses, because we have all of these targets for the building of new houses. And again, people are sceptical as to whether they will be delivered or not. But the retrofitting of old housing, I mean, realistically, what's going to happen with that? The grants may be there, but how difficult are they for people to draw down? And how difficult is it going to be for people to get tradesmen to actually affordably do the things that need to be done in many houses? It's happening. Um, If you talk to people in the industry, which was bedeviled by stop-start and uncertain signals. So we used to have a system where you know, the grants each year would be uh, decided in the budget and then, but the the actual allocations wouldn't come through to the spring. So the whole industry would stop for six months. They would kind of stop for the winter and then they'd say, okay, oh, we do have the money again and we start up again. That's That has changed where we now have a 10-year clear pathway. One of the benefits of the carbon tax system we've introduced is we've given clear commitment to Department of Finance guaranteed that 55% of the revenue goes to retrofitting. So we know the money's going to be there. And they're responding at scale and they've never been busier. They're absolutely flat out, partly because of all that grants, but also because the price of oil and gas is so is so incredibly expensive. And that like to be honest, Matt, like we were talking about energy security there. Um and, and yes, this winter is going to be, going to be tight, but I, I think we should be able to work through. And, and the you coming have, are you confident we'd avoid power cuts? Yes, I, I, but you know, we're dependent on no fossil fuel plants breaking down as they have in recent years. But subject to that, we should. If they do break down, then we have to manage it. But but how? Uh, um, you manage through the, the likes of what crew just came out with their consultation the other day to to try and spread the peak, so you don't you know you, you avoid the peak, the real peak 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 demand. But just to make the point. The real challenge the next two winters is on the price of energy. Like there's no two ways about it. If you look at the forward price for gas for next winter, it's beyond compare to anything we've seen historically. It's 10 times the historical average because of this war in Ukraine. And that is going to be the biggest challenge facing this government, as well as housing, and but, but an incredible challenge. One of the benefits of the retrofitting scheme is that it's a very practical way of actually protecting people in that. One of the ways people can do it is even the kind of relatively easy and quick jobs to do, you know, the attic insulation, sort of where we're providing 80% grants, you know, to really try and encourage and incentivize it. That is going to be one of the key solutions to what is going to be the biggest political challenge in the next two winters. And it's likely to be two winters, not just one, because there's no sign of this war ending. There's no sign of moving away from energy being used as the weapon in the way that it is. And I'll be honest, I think that's our biggest challenge in the next two years. It's getting, it's maintaining, uh, it's helping people through what's going to be a very difficult time on the energy side, particularly on the prices. You came into government with John Gormley and the Greens in 2007. You were minister for four years during a time of absolute crisis. You've come back in in 2020 to another different crisis in COVID. And now another crisis again caused largely by the war in Ukraine. You came in with a lot of ambitions and aspirations and we've been hearing them in the last hour as to the type of things you want to do. But how frustrating is it as a politician to have the idea of all these things that you want to do, but yet ending up firefighting on immediate issues rather than dealing with medium term to long term change. I'm. Uh, well, it is firefighting a lot of the time, but that uh, 
uh, that's your responsibility and and uh, it's it's a real privilege to be to be able to serve uh, but I think particularly at this time it's a time of real change and yes a lot of it's the immediate emergency issue particularly around energy prices but it's also it's a time when everything is pivoting and you can actually make a difference you can influence where we go as a country I I'm confident that um, we have in place the political will among my government colleagues and the agencies and, and others, and, and more, more, more than anything else, the Irish people. I think the Irish people want to go green. I, I think, I think they, they want to play their part in tackling what climate change. What makes you think that? Because I go out around the country all the time and listen and are very attentive to it. <laughs> it's kind of something I'm very interested in. And my sense is the Irish people have a sense of wanting to protect the future for the next generation. But how conscious are you of the fact that you know, when we talk about these issues on radio, the, the phone lines, the text messages, the WhatsApp messages are buzzing with criticism of the Greens. You almost seem to be like the lightning rod for discontent with this government. Do you get that sense when you meet people that they actually have this hostility towards the change that you want them to make? I don't. I mean, yes, you do meet some people, you know, and they've, they're right. You know, that, that's their right. But in reality, I think um, sometimes on social media or sometimes even, you know, text lines or whatever, uh, it draws heat or it, it kind of, it, you know, kind of, it, it, it feeds on, on dissent. Actually, if you go out, well, politics is an interesting profession. One of the interesting things about it is you go out door to door, you listen to people, knock on people, randomly knock on people's doors. And, and well, I always say to people I'm canvassing with them, this is, we're, we're here to listen here now. And, and you open up with a kind of general question, you know, well, how are things? Or, or you know, is there any problems or anything? Uh, and you sit back and actually um, it would restore your faith in human nature. It's not as... Um, as divisive as Facebook or Twitter or other kind of four like that can be. And and I think, uh, I'm absolutely convinced that Irish people are sitting at home watching on television and they're watching the likes of David Attenborough and they're watching these other programs. They can see it themselves. Like anyone of a certain age can see that the natural world is being destroyed. I, I, I've seen it was on, just on holidays, you know, out, out in Anishbafen. And an example that I grew up as a kid when uh, you catch mackerel like it was guaranteed, you know, the fish was full of, or the sea was full of fish. We're out this summer, there's no mackerel there. You know, okay, occasionally you get a shoal, but nothing like what it was when I was a kid. And anyone of a certain age can see that, can know that, you know, can have a sense of that, that the natural world has been, is under threat. And people have an attraction and, and to living in a beautiful world. And they can, they want to do something about it. And yes, you can get frustrations. Yes, you can get kind of a, you know, rouse about whatever, you know, any issue, pick the issue of the day. But do the Irish people in their underlying, when they're sitting at home watching the television or listening to radio and they're kind of, they're hearing about all, they're hearing all this science about climate. It's terrifying. Like it's, it would scare the living daylights out of you. You know, the world is burning. That's not an easy thing to cope with. What our job, I think, is is to give people a sense of what is the way of tackling that? What is the way of addressing it? 
that is not a kind of punitive, you're the bad perp, you know, you're, it, that gives them a sense of hope and a sense of direction. But you said yourself a few minutes ago, the next two years, what will be hardest for the government is because it's going to be hardest for many citizens who won't really worry too much about the future of the environment. They're going to be worried about paying their home heating bills keeping the lights on. Someone put it well in the last election or recently a while ago says here we are worrying about the end of the world and I'm worrying about the end of the week or the end of the month and you're right And but that's that's our job in politics is to try and make sure that we have the protections and mechanisms in place through the budget and elsewhere that allow us to get through the next two years but come out of it having made a change. I mean, the real understanding here is why are we under attack? Why is it this so difficult? Why are we paying so much? Why are we in such a problem here? It's because we're relying on imported fossil fuels. That's the problem. And we use this as a pivot moment to switch away from that towards a completely different system where we rely on our natural resources. The reason I think the Irish people bought into that in a way is that's at the cornerstone of our proclamation. That's our very cornerstone of our Republican ideal, in a sense. We rely on our own natural resources. We rely on the bounty that we have here and use that to create a secure economy. And that's what we need to get out of the next two years. Protect people as we go, but make the switch. Well, one final thing. Let's assume that this government runs its full course with the change of Taoiseach in December and continues on. And then you have an election. At the moment, it certainly looks like Sinn Féin is in a very, very strong position to lead the next government. But it doesn't look like it would get an overall majority. It's going to need coalition partners. Are you open to the idea of going into coalition with Sinn Féin after the next election? Come back to what we said at the very start here, like this decade is is important like no other. You can't afford in those circumstances to opt out and say, oh, we'll come back when when there's some ideal political coalition. Um, The politics of climate change won't work if it's divisive. I believe it's our job to work with all parties to share this green agenda, not to own it, and to make sure that it's at the heart of all Irish political thinking. And I said in the last election, I think the one before that, yes, we would be open to consideration of working with all parties, but it would be only on the basis that we're actually serious and effective in delivering the change that we need to make, that we actually follow up and deliver on the climate law and what it is saying we need to do. And so with any other party, those negotiations will be really intense. I think that's the right way of doing it, to make sure that it's not just who you're going into government with, it's what is that government going to do. And what about Sinn Féin's positions on environmental issues at present? They seem, in many respects, to be ducking it. So what do you think of their uh, ability to engage with what needs to be done? There can't be any ducking it. This is the centre, not just of environmental policy at the present time, but it's also the economic strategy. Like the whole of Europe, the whole European economic strategy now is to go green. It's the Green New Deal. It's the centre of everything. So if any party thinks, oh, we'll go into government and we'll, we won't really address the climate stuff or the, or the biodiversity or the water pollution, not only would be that disaster and economically or environmentally, it would also be just completely out of tune, out of sync with what's happening in the wider world and what our opportunity is. So I, uh, that's not an option. Eamon Ryan, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. And that was today's edition of the Magnified with Matt Cooper series. If you enjoyed it, well, tell a friend, please share it via social media and subscribe as well to hear each new edition each week in association with MG. 
So from now, from me, Matt Cooper, thank you very much for having been with us. Magnified with Matt Cooper, sponsored by MG, the family-friendly electric range. Book a test drive at mg.ie and recharge your soul.